everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm uh, Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. <laughs> and today we are going to talk about Reboa. Um, this is resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. This is a uh, is an emerging... Oh, it's not really, I don't want to say it's emerging. That's not really true. It's been around for a little while. But for EMS, it's a, uh, a fairly new technique, and we're using it in, uh, in trauma. This has been used in London and in Paris, and uh, it's going to be coming to the United States fairly shortly. Um, yeah. It's going to be a, a sort of a newer thing that we're doing. Um, there is a physician out of UPenn who is sort of directing this, uh, a guy named Zaf Kassim. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. I want to. I, if, my apologies if he. Uh, yeah, if Dr. Kasim, we're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> please, I'm it's sorry. Please can't. come on the show and correct us. Yeah. So uh, this essentially comes down from um, the the crux of it. Essentially, is a balloon gets inserted in the aorta through the femoral artery uh, and inflates, and it reduces uh, hemorrhagic bleeding. Now, the reason that this is relevant is as time goes on, we kind of adjust how we deal with exsanguinous injuries. So, you know, we went from the direct pressure and pressure points, and now we have quick clot and all this other kind of stuff. And what Reboa essentially solves is for a long time, we were talking about stopping a bleeding, stopping bleeding from the outside, and Reboa essentially stops bleeding from the inside. So that's kind right, of... It's the, almost like an internal endovascular cross clamp. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it is. You know, instead of cutting the, you know, cutting the patient open at the chest and getting the big, long forceps in there and squeezing the aorta off and... You know, you're actually just it's on it's going in through a blood vessel. Yeah. And this is the idea behind this essentially is that I guess the first thing would have to happen for medics to use this is we'd have to become fairly skilled at starting femoral lines. So if you if you're not able to start a femoral line, then you're going to have to do a cut down to the femoral artery and actually insert this uh, this catheter. So there, there's a bunch of different steps that are going to go into it. We're going to talk about it in a second. But so right now, um, the whole point of Reboa is that if there's an uncompressible bleed, it's going to be better to stay on scene and start Reboa um, than to give you know the old-fashioned diesel bolus and fly essentially to the trauma center as quickly as possible. Um, so that that's kind of what we're looking at with this. But we're also going to take this talk and we're going to kind of expand it a little bit into changing how um, we deal with trauma patients. Because another thing that is essential to using Reboa and have the success of it is giving whole blood for patients who have exsanguinous injuries. Because for 25 years, we've been giving normal saline and lactated ringers to patients who are losing blood. And when you bleed, you don't bleed ringers or saline. So we've been diluting blood for quite some time as well. So this is kind of a, a, a two-part component. Um, and we're going to kind of get a little weedsy in this, but I think it's kind of worth it to, uh, to talk about. So... When we talk about bleeding and exsanguinous injuries, we know that everything kind of comes from the military, and we have 70% of military deaths attributed to torso bleeds, so this is kind of how Reboa comes into the picture. So let's talk a little bit about how we have dealt with serious exsanguinous injuries and how Reboa might actually change things. So what do we remember about actually treating exsanguinous injuries in the field? Besides the panic. Besides the panic. Oh, God, he's bleeding. <laughs> pressure, 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 and just pile up the gauze. <laughs> well, that's if, I mean, that's even if you can get to a site that's potentially compressible. I mean, what yes. Reboa is designed to work with is those hemorrhages that are not compressible. Like, you know, picture in your mind the, the patient with the crushed pelvis post uh, MVC versus pedestrian. Right. This is a person who's bleeding into a really big space. Uh, a lot of major vessel damage and is losing a ton of blood. They're sick as hell. Um, there's really not a lot we can do pre-hospital. Um, you know, tourniquets are great. You know, wound packing works. We know that. But what if we can't get to that femoral artery or that iliac artery or we can't right. get to that lower part of the aorta? So the idea of Reboa is minimally invasive. Um, instead of doing the thoracotomy in the stream and cut and cross clamping the aorta to save what's what's spilling out into non-usable space, the idea, okay, we're gonna float this catheter up, we're gonna inflate it with saline, and it's gonna plug the hole until we can get them to the operating room. Right. And the other thing to remember that this is typically dealing with abdominal or thoracic trauma. Right. This isn't, you know, someone who has a long bone fracture or, you know, obviously like a femoral artery injury. So and there's three different um, zones that this Reboa catheter can go into. And I don't really get too deep into it because it's going to turn into a whole like, you know, teaching session on how to actually start it. So and this is something that's still very new in the pre-hospital setting. But another thing that has to be considered if we're going to start this treatment, aside from that, you know, we're putting this in, you know, it has to go in through a cortis. So you have to start a fairly large um, type of line. 
before we initiate this therapy is that this also has to be ultrasound guided. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So you, this isn't something that we're just going to do blind in the field. So there, as I said, there's plenty of steps that have to happen before we actually roll this out into the field. Um, but I do think that it's important that it gets discussed. So part of the problem with an abdominal bleed or a, a thoracic bleed is when we're looking for free blood in the abdomen, we're typically that's done with a fast scan. Right. So, you know, you have someone who comes out with, you know, your ultrasound, you run the scan through and you see whether or not there's free blood. Right. But about 30 percent of negative fast scans still have an abdominal bleed. So, you know, if that's a really interesting thing, because right? fast scans have always been, you know, held up as these this definitive like, wow, you'll know when they're bleeding. Right. And then we and, and, and then this is 30 percent of it. That's scary. Right, and so that's that's where a technique like this is going to come into play. So if you have someone who you can, I guess, reliably think has an abdominal injury that might be bleeding, and you know they follow all the signs of shock uh, that we're, we typically look at in the field, this is where this is going to come into play. So essentially what this is going to come down to is you have a patient who you think is, is eligible for a bleed. You're going to have to establish this cortis at the femoral artery, and then you're going to have to in- insert this balloon into their aorta. The balloon inflates. Uh, we inflate it with saline, and it essentially occludes the aorta so it stops further bleeding. Right? Right. So physiologically, it makes a lot of sense. And when we mention cortis, we're talking about a really big intravessel catheter. Right, yeah. So it's, gonna, so it's, a, it's a big introductory catheter. Um, you know, it, it used to be much larger uh, when they first started the therapy than it is now. Um, it's so much smaller. But I guess one of the things that we should talk about is the concerns about this rolling out to the field. Right. So with any new technology that's coming out. And so the reason we're talking about this is Reboa is happening. Sure. Right? It's, 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 it's it's already it's, been it's already in the field. In There's countries. at least one documented instance of it saved a life in the right. field. Uh, I think London Hems did the first mm-hmm. uh, pre-hospital Reboa. Uh, they fly with a physician paramedic team. Right. And, um, well, and also they all have they at night their flight team is in a fly car. Not, yeah, not a car that flies. Right. But it, yeah, the helicopter only <laughs> oh, goes during the day. Great. Right. And, got, oh, this is a car that flies. Well, London's yes. London system is really interesting. That's almost another thing, and and we we could almost try to get somebody to talk about it because the helicopter is like the delivery system for the doctor. Right. You know, um, they can transport, but a lot of times they'll transport with ground units. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, but they're the first ones that did it. Um, there's other places that are looking at adopting it. There's other. Well, Paris is doing it too. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is where um, Dr. I'm going to say his name wrong, I know. Dr. Kasim, um, he's advised in both London and Paris. Okay. So, but no, you're right. So there's, you know, a significant trauma. The flight team will go out and they can actually kind of set up a, almost like a roadside surgery and start this Reboa treatment. So uh, before going into like all the ins and outs and all the data, because there's the data that's out there is fairly spotty. Um, I guess the questions to ask is we know that we have to implement ultrasound in the field before we do this. And we also know this is going to involve essentially a sort of a, a, a low skill surgical procedure in the field as well. So yeah. the and, question, general, and generally something that comes with a sterile field. Right. Exactly. So the, and that's kind of the first thing is that we talk about sterile. Yeah, or fields. is it sterile ish? Right, and we we talk about <laughs> sterile fields a lot, but we know that sterile fields don't really exist pre-hospitally. Yeah, I guess the, right. I guess the question is, what do you will on the, the you going to sacrifice a sterile field for a life-saving intervention? Well, if you look at if you look at Samu in Paris doing um, pre-hospital, I also love ECMO. the name of the project. I love that it's called Samu. It makes me smile. Oh, it's yeah. I have to <laughs> talk to uh, I have to talk to my wife about that. The French teacher. It's. <laughs> translate into something yeah it is it means something but le, le samu samu is friends. an acronym but they do it in the field they do it in the louvre there, there's that famous picture that's in the mm-hmm. internet the uh the samu team did an ecmo uh initiation in the louvre uh they've done it on metro stops they you know but yeah it's sterile ish right which again that's again that's kind of the, the first key is we know that we don't deal in sterile environments so Knowing that it's going to require all this additional technology, with that you know, ultrasound, sterile fields, I guess the question that we have to put to the panel is, what, what's the likelihood of you imagining a, a paramedic, you know, average medic, you know, nothing too special, A, implementing ultrasound to do any procedure, and B, then taking the procedure and saying, you know what, I'm going to take this ultrasound, find the femoral artery, I'm going to put a cortis in, and then I'm going to put this large balloon into the patient's aorta. I mean, I think for me, that's like my dream. Like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's the whole. That's my whole point. I wanna. I wanna be a part of that as a as a flight medic. And I know there's certain things that are in my scope of practice that aren't practiced in you know where I work. Right. But that'd be something I would 
like I salivate the thought of putting in a central line and then going through Reboa and even being part of an ECMO team. Like that's all stuff I want. Mm. But generally speaking, when you have a one of these highly specialized teams go to a scene or a hospital, the paramedic only serves as like the safety officer on the helicopter. But right. with the implementation of ultrasound, um, the ability to start like ephemeral line, I see that in hopefully in my future. Well, I I do think that. Without question, this is like I said, this is coming out into the field now. It might take five or ten years until it's like a common procedure. I'm patient, um, but I, I, I do. <laughs> I need it to happen now. Um, but I do think it's going to be rolling out in you know the, I guess historically not too distant future. So, but my question is, you know, we have people around the table who like we work, you know, kind of hard. We go to conferences, we learn things. You know, we work hard to keep up um, our competency. But I, I, the question is really more, the average medic. The, you know, 48 CEU, you know, every two years medic, they're going to be just as responsible for starting this procedure. I don't think you have it. I'm not going to lie. I think you have the first part. I think I think the uh, the idea of ultrasound in an average medic is just another tool. I think you're Mm -hmm. just going to have to train them how to use it. Just like when they had the life pack 10 and you started doing 12 leads. Oh my God, it's so scary. And it's totally, (laughs) totally new. And now everybody does it. Right. I think that's where ultrasound kind of sits with any population in the medic uh, community. I think once you start talking minimally or even marginally invasive procedures like Reboa, you're going to start to lose a lot of folks. Well, when you say you lose them, do you mean like out of the practice or they're just not going to be willing to do something like I don't think like it's going to be out of the practice. I don't even think they're going to be unwilling. I just think that they're not going to maintain the skill. Right. So, you know, you, you're just maintaining your, uh, your standard CEUs per research. Yeah, I know. Yeah, sure. I know how to do Reboa, but like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I did this one time and a thing, and now I'm done. I did well, it my well, annual competencies. Yay. Yeah. Right. Well, so every and, year. And that's going to be a big concern for any project that wants to look into doing this, right? Right. Because it's like, same thing, you know, if you're doing a surgical crike in the field or mm-hmm. even a needle crike, every year, you know, you go in or how, if you're doing annual competencies. I can crike like that mannequin like a freaking pro. <laughs> all, you all give me time. a live person. There's no way. Because there's plenty of like pre-cut holes in it. Like, do I yeah. go, I, go I think there? it's right here, right? right? Yeah, I know. Same thing with the old IO legs. <laughs> <laughs> it goes it goes there. I can tell. I'm going to take the other side of this. Of course you are. I am I love this idea. I love the idea of bringing care to the point of injury because I really, truly believe that, and we can talk about this later on too, that the, I think the golden hour is really a myth. Sure. Um, sure. I think that the vast majority of patients don't go to surgery within an hour of arrival at the hospital, and I think the studies, there's, there's evidence that backs that up. That being said, as a clinical person, I can tell you the effective filter that came up talking about we went from needle crikes to open crikes. Right. And two tiny cuts. That's really all we're looking at. And it was nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. You know, we do it at least twice a year. We qualify on it. Um, You know, some of us that teach it, we practice it all the time. Um, You know, I personally, I've never done one. I don't think I'll ever get to do one in my career, but I'm ready. And uh, I, I believe I can do it. I don't know that this is something that every system is going to be able to do. I don't think it's going to be standard of care. Um, I think in a system where you have really, really, uh, where you have a really good clinical oversight, where you have really progressive medical direction, where you have a, a robust physician response team, I think this is doable. And I do believe it'll save lives, but I don't want this in the hands of regular medics. I don't think that this is something that's going to come to every medic project necessarily, but I do think that it's going to affect you know like larger systems. You know, I, 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 I don't, don't dispute I don't, that. I don't think if you're in a small system, you know, it has two response vehicles and you cover ten miles. I don't think that's going to be a system that's affected by it. But I absolutely can see this happening, say, like in an urban setting. I think it can happen for already, uh, every medic system. Now, granted, I just said that I don't like the idea that every average uh, average medic is going to keep up on their education, but maybe that's the point, is that mm-hmm. if you want this in your system, no matter how big or small you are, up your education standards. Yeah, increase your compliance. Yeah. Right, and that's a th- when you're implementing any type of new clinical program, that's always something that you're going to have to do, right? You have to try and keep everybody up on it. So sort of the tangential effect of something like Reboa or like any other invasive procedure that medics can do 
is going to be that you're going to have to change the paradigm of how you actually train people. So before we implement something like this, and this is just before we start getting into the data and all that kind of stuff behind this, are we, as a practice, are we going to have to start changing how we teach and how we maintain competency in general? Absolutely. Yes. Are we going to have to? We should have already. I, d- I don't disagree with you, but <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, if we're going to start telling people like you have to cut down to the femoral artery, you know, it's not something that we were ever taught in school. No. No. But that kind of goes, it's, it's an, it's an add on. It's something that you want your people to kind of aspire to. Right. So should the approach be different? You're going to get two reactions yeah. when yes. you ask somebody to cut down to a femoral artery or an ultrasound, um, ultra guide, um, ultrasound guided uh, femoral line, you're going to have people like, oh my God, I can't wait to do this. And you're going to have others. And like, those are the people that I'm worried about. The ones that are excited to do it? Oh yeah. Like I'm me? worried about both. There's, worried? there's no, the Kevins I'm, of the world listen. and then there's the Annas of the world who's going, oh fuck, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot this of This is going to be a lot of stuff. If you're looking forward to doing this for real, I and I'm taking you out of this because I know how how committed you are to education in your practice and i'm going to say you're an outlier but i'm going to say if somebody you know is going like yeah man i can't wait to get that reboa that first reboa my position is like kind of looking at it as a police officer who comes out of the academy can't uh, wait to uh, get that first you're shooting doing, okay. you're doing the, like uh, if everything's gotcha. a, if yeah. everything if you're a hammer everything's right. a nail absolutely right. uh, that's, so, yeah. no, that scares me i got you there that's, and that's, that's that's right that's really interesting so is it is it that you're excited to do it, I'm ex- or is it that you're excited that you have that for, option? I'm excited to have it in my arsenal. Okay, because there's there's a lot of things of trust me. I would love to do an open crank, and then I, when the time comes, I'm going to be ready. Same thing, but you're not I like were, running out and just be like, I'm going to cut someone's throat. No, tonight. no, I'm not coming. I'm not landing on a scene of like pain. Yeah, you I'm need not, a crank. <laughs> yeah, I'm not landing on a scene and being like, oh man, the medic, uh, they couldn't get the oh yeah, ten get the blade better, all day. Better yeah. cut them open. Like no, no, no. It's we're gonna we're gonna go through the things the right way. We're not gonna fire our, our biggest piece of artillery right away when there's other smaller things right. I can do. So yeah, I want it in my arsenal, and I want I want the education that comes with it. I want the practice that comes with it, and I want to know. And just like I do with any other skill I have, is to feel comfortable doing it when the time comes. Because I could just like open Craig, I might go an entire career and never get a shot at it. Right. But when it and when and if it comes, I'll be ready. So and that's it, a good it, attitude to have, I think. Sure. You know, I I sit with my medical director and we talk about the things that we want our our paramedics to be able to do. And you know, we've discussed things, and one of the things you know we we talk about that like. Sometimes you have to play to the middle of the bell curve. Well, that's kind of what I was talking about with the you know the, is the this, average medic thing. Is, is this something that the average entry and let's put it the, let's put it this way entry level average paramedic right. who passed boards is this something they're going to be able to do reliably and safely? With, I think with I think no taught, physician oversight if they're taught during their program. That this is a common thing, I think it's it's probably something that could be considered. Now, I'm not saying that that's the end all be all of it. If they go, if they're taught during their medic class that this is a skill that they have to have, it's probably something that they can have as entry level competence. But I only say that because there's plenty of procedures that we do that initially, like like even IOs, and I'm not comparing Reboa to IO at all. But when IOs first came out, it was kind of like, well, we can't teach this to new people until we taught it to new people. The same thing with CPAP. Right. When it, you know. It was totally restricted before I was even a, a paramedic. It was, you know, it can only be done for CHF and oh, only right. if they meet these requirements. But now uh, it's like, oh, do you have look, the I, sniffles? Look, I <laughs> go for it. <laughs> do, that's you, do you the have the sniffles? <laughs> the new take thing, this. The new thing for the common cold. It's just, <laughs> instead of it's hot just, tea, take the CPAP. Yeah. You'll be fine. Well, it puts it all back in. Which <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> it pushes but all the stuff back in. But the force. education evolved, and that's the point, right. is that at one point or another we said, this is a, this is going to be beneficial for our patients, so even if you are entry-level, you have to know this. So maybe it's a, a matter of, even if you have an entry-level paramedic, taking them and putting them through some kind of course. Sure. And, you know, we want to do Reboa, so you have to have this, this, and this done in your first three years or so. I think I think we're Shake getting ahead head. of ourselves where we're thinking the average paramedic is going to get Reboa any time, maybe even in our careers. No, no, this is, this is absolutely oh, like oh, a, a, a five or ten down the road. But Listen, again, but it, it, or, it contributes, five, it contributes to a bigger conversation about how to actually get information out to the medics, regardless of what the procedures you're doing. Mm-hmm. Five or ten down the road, advanced level paramedics only with physician support. Right. It's the only way you're going to make this work. Yeah, but you know what? I agree with that because then at least the, educa- uh, the education standard is there. 
But if we're talking about, because I mean, we said I said it off air. I just I have no idea what Roboa is look, at all. We're gonna I don't even know if I, look. I don't <laughs> even know if I can do ephemeral cut down. Right. I think I know what I'm looking at. Right. And you know what? I I'm I'm a firm believer in ultrasound. And you know, we were playing. Kevin and I were playing with the butterfly at the MCRIT conference. Which is so cool. And I felt and I felt like a clown because I'm like, yeah, I think I'm looking at something. I think I know what I'm looking at. Right. And I've seen ultrasound images, but I'm not there yet. I need more what? time. I need more proficiency. Sure. I need more education. But again, we're not. I don't know that that's something that we can do right now. But I don't know that we're suggesting that like the four of us will go do Reboa today. Oh, oh I won't. I quit. I mean, <laughs> I'm not <asked> it. <laughs> Nope. See, see, All right, different gonna, reactions. I'm gonna He's need a ready? screwdriver and a pack of gum and a <laughs> drinking straw, and I'm gonna the go best do MacGyver. it. It's on. Yeah, <laughs> it's on. But but that's kind of my point is that I think I personally think that this is something that's that's coming, and I think that the way it's going to happen, whether it's an advanced paramedic program that actually has very pr- progressive medical oversight, or you know even like in city settings where they have. Um, you know, not, not so much like a SWAT response, but like a special ops response. I think this is something that has a lot of utility in like a mass casualty type of situation. I think Reboa should just be the, like, that's the end goal. Okay. At this point, like, you know, I I can do an IO, I can do a 12 lead, I can do whatever else. It's like the, as they, just a road medic. Mm-hmm. Um, so the step process is already kind of in place. We're looking to start the conversation about um, fast scans and getting right. uh, POCUS out there. And then there's conversations kind of revolving around that where it comes to whole blood use and, you know, frozen plasma and that kind of thing. So in that sense, we're starting off the, the grounds for that kind of uh, conversation or education. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that, you know, Reboa could be out there is one of those, like, end goals. Like, it's all the way down. you got to walk before you run. Absolutely. Well, and this is running. This is crawling. This is this is this is crawling at this stage. This, this is this is that. Usain Bolt like Olympian sprinting. No, this is this is this is sports so, ball. This is so far beyond where we're at right now. Yeah, but look. Uh, but you, I think it's necessary too. Yeah, look at the history of paramedicine. I don't dispute that it's necessary. I think everything in okay. the history of paramedicine has been like here. Now you got this. Let's add something else. Add something else. Remember, even EMTs start off as the five points, and now you have an entire like. National Registry curriculum, like sure. every time something keeps getting added, I think Reboa is an end is a the next big goalpost. It's a, in the next stadium, but it's when we the get there, stadium. well, after we get Reboa, there'll be something else because there'll be a new advanced practice. It's just going to keep yeah, going. I absolutely agree with that. I think I I, so. Do, this is this is that. a huge next big thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not disputing that at all, but I do think it is the next big thing because you have to as as a practice paramedicine can only come so far right like i like okay let's like realistically run, like, yeah run 12 leads all right now run a 15 lead like you're kind of feeling frisky all right well we can activate a cath lab but then we kind of can't really do anything about then it what? and we're learning more and more that the more we actually apply pre-hospitally the better off people are so for trauma we just take people into trauma centers with you know, significant bleeding mm-hmm. and then kind of hope for the best. We know that there's a delay getting into the hospital. There's a delay in the trauma bay and there's a delay getting up to surgery. So if we can actually help to fix somebody in the field, this is where this kind of practice comes in, comes into play. You know what we really have to do, and this might be another episode, is um, get the ERs and the hospitals on board with what we're doing before we start doing it. Sure. And, but that's do you remember, like, do you remember like when like we stopped? Like, and, like, this you got to like, break pretty, down the tribalism. Well, there's that. But, like, do you remember, like, when we started doing, like, the removal of backboards in the area? And, like, this is just our area. Like, I can't talk for everybody else. But when we started taking patients off the backboard at scenes and arriving at trauma with no one on a board, staff lost their minds. Sure. I was cursed off in the middle of a trauma center at 3 o'clock in the morning. Not fun. But also (laughs) spoke to the idea that I'm ahead in my practice, but they're not with me. Right, and there's plenty of places that run into that scenario too. When you have, you know, paramedics that are giving drugs like ketamine and rock for RSI, and the hospitals can't TXI. Give it TXI, right, yeah. yeah, 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 that's another big thing. So, I you have to be in a system where everything is sort of universal, and that's not always the case in our geographic area. But there are a lot of places where that is the case, where the hospital will start some kind of program on something, and then it kind of trickles down to the medics. So, outside of the politics of this, where did this all start? Who got the idea of this? You know, hey, let's float a catheter up there and plug everything up, and they'll get better. <laughs> have you ever seen? Have you ever seen the Nick? The Nick? The Nick? No. The show? No. This is like this like budding surgeon who decided to put like just 
balloons full of water inside yeah. of women to occlude their like uh, cesarean section. Yeah, it's he a, just like it, invented the. the it thing. was a show on Cinemax. Yeah. Okay, it was it, it's so it's based off of a an actual hospital and doctors and all. This Are kind we going to get into a copyright issue? No, we but, love the no. show. Please don't sue us. I mean, it's it's off the air now. It, no. it's on oh. it's on repeat. Um, okay, but we we can we can talk about. But that's what it like rem- reminded me of. It's just like some guy just yeah. like he got. Pumped well, up that's where most medicine well, comes from. Is somebody's like, "Hey, right. you know, let's maybe this will work." Like, well, look so, at CPR, the Heimlich maneuver, all the things. You know, whoever thought it's sticking a tube down somebody's throat and breathing for them would actually do something. According right. to the Nick, it was a guy like really strung out on heroin. Well, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he got messed up, and wow. then we saved people. Yeah, oh, that, wow. that's that was the entire yeah, it's the entire story. That is that. the whole story. So, so it actually this it. the primary use of Ebola actually goes back to 1954. Um, we had three soldiers in Korea who received essentially a, a very primitive Reboa treatment. Um, two made it to surgery and all and all died uh, okay. long term because it turns out traumatic injury kills people. Whoops. But that's that's relevant to the rest of the data that's out there as well because as this is a very new thing. So this is a, another problem with any sort of new technology because in theory, this is a procedure that works. Mm-hmm. Right. So 2011, um, the Journal for Surgery uh, compared animal models with and without Reboa, which we, we're not really crazy about animal models because we are humans and not, you know, say dogs or pigs. Also, they're cute. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do this stuff. Um, but they found that it improved cerebral perfusion by 150 to 200 percent in trauma, which is a big deal. That's if interesting. We can, if we can get more. Bl- and it, but again, physiologically, it makes sense. Right. Right. If you're putting up this balloon. And you're blocking the aorta so that they can't actually perfuse to see like their kidneys and their lower extremities. It makes sense that there's more perfusion perfusion right. to the brain. Just just like how we teach like how things work. You're making the container smaller. So right, that's the whole idea. So after that, um, after these animal studies came out, we move on to 2013 in Baltimore, um, where we found we had six patients who were eligible for it. Um, they all received Reboa, and they had no procedural complaints, and they also had um, no mortality related to the bleeding. Now, that's not to say that there weren't further injuries, because there's always a risk of lower extremity ischemia, um, because, again, you are occluding the aorta. Um, I was interested to see no Reboa procedural complaints, because I feel like it's a big cortis being jammed into your pelvis. Yeah. Um, but, again, it may just be that you had a patient who didn't, who wasn't cognizant enough to realize what was actually going on. Yeah, and is that facility-specific? Uh, yeah, so, th- th- again, and it's also a very small sample size. I feel like if you found six patients who received most procedures, they, they may not have significant pl- complaints about most things. Um, so we move on to 2016, the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Um, they did a systematic review of patients who had received Reboa, and they found that there was no obvious benefit to the treatment, which, again, is kind of a flag when you're going through the data, but it, showing no obvious benefit is not the same thing as showing obvious deficit. Right. Agreed. Got it. So it's, it's, I mean, if this is something you're going to as a last gasp, you know, you right. probably look at it as, okay, did they die because of, did the procedure not benefit them or was it a matter of you really waited too long for this? Sure. Would, and, and that's kind of, again, the, the crux of this debate is we know that people who have significant abdominal injury have a high mortality as is. So right. the, the whole goal is to at least reduce the mortality, not necessarily eliminate it. And again, like to reinforce, this is something that we've said plenty of times in the show before, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So that we don't have very good data sets doesn't mean that the data is bad. Um, and I guess some of the most recent stuff in 2016, um, again, this is a J-trauma and acute care surgery. They looked at Reboa versus resuscitative thoracotomy, which is never something that we're going to do in the field. Um, I don't think we're ever actually going to like cut somebody open and try and do that. Um, and this is, again, we have zero survival and the patients that did receive Reboa, they tend to die um, secondary to head injury or um, multi-organ dysfunctional, uh, multi- multi-organ dysfunction. Um, but they did find that the, the Reboa patients had a much higher survivability rate other than th- over the, the uh, thoracotomy. 37.5% survival in the Reboa group, 9% in the thoracotomy group. That's pretty interesting. Also, because you didn't cut them the frick open. (laughs) (laughs) But but wait a minute. But resuscitated thoracotomy, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on the other side of this. Okay. I don't. I would almost think that that's something that could be done feasibly. You think that's more feasible in the field than I I think it's. yeah, I think I think if you think about the apparatus involved, the equipment involved. Well, so so go through that. So we've already talked about the 
the actual Reboa treatment where we have the cordis, we have the catheter, all that kind of stuff. So what what type of equipment would be needed for a resuscitative thoracotomy in the field? Okay, so you, you would absolutely, you, you need scalpel. You need um, a finichetto or a rib, set of rib spreaders. Right. You would need... Um, finichetto would be a really good band name, by the way. Finichetto <laughs> is... Finichetto! <laughs> So, but essentially, the name of my Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you need a a set of rib spreaders. You would need long forceps. I think they're Mayo's. I don't quote me on this. I'm not a surgeon. Mayonnaise cat, mayonnaise clamps. Um, Yeah, big. (laughs) You'd have to be. But here's the thing, too, for for the thing that you know, for talking about thoracotomy, what are the two biggest things you're going to be able to solve with with a? I look at it as an ED thoracotomy. Thoracotomy. Sure. Not a surgeon doing this. This is an emergency physician. The goal is relieve tension pneumothorax mm-hmm. and pericardial tamponade, right. which are the two fatal injuries that we know we can fix. Right. But with a thoracotomy, that's not going to affect Reboa at all. We're no. Just, we're just talking uh, about hemorrhage. Uh, that's talking about massive bleeding. Right. That's a whole different story. And and yeah, I know. Look, I've been to play. I've been to conferences where they talk about, yeah, you can cut this and do a Hyler twist, or you can cross clamp something. Ooh, Hyler twist, band name. Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. Now I'm not dance move. And this is <laughs> only what I've observed. But I think relieving tension pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade is an easier task than getting a Reboa started. Uh, sure. Um, I don't know that the outcomes are even better. But we're already we're already getting rid of pneumothoraces in the field with chest decompression. But it doesn't relieve, it it works, but it doesn't work as effectively. But I don't think we're looking for destination treatment in the field. I think we're looking for We're looking to save lives. Right, but that's what I'm saying. I think think a a needle decompression actually kind of serves that purpose. Because if the debate is going to be like, all right, we're looking to What if it's a hemothorax? What if you're a hemothorax? (laughs) (laughs) But no, if the the conversation is going to be like, well, you know, we're looking to treat things effectively, then I think needle decompression works perfectly fine for a pneumothorax as compared to actually doing a thoracotomy. I think think some people would argue at a paramedic level that a finger thoracostomy is probably a better option. Sure. But but for something like this, if someone has a pretty significant exsanguinous injury and our options are Reboa or thoracotomy, and we know that Reboa is giving a, what, 29% higher survivability rate? Right? Is that twenty nine? I can't. Yeah, I'll take listen, fair point. You know, so I think that's 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 at least interesting data. It right? is. That's something sure that's, is. that's something that's worth exploring a little bit more. No, right. I'm not so. I'm not disagreeing that the data is interesting. I'm I'm disagreeing that I think it's something that a paramedic can do. I, you know what? I'm going to agree that the, uh, the thoracotomy is something a pa- uh, paramedic can do because it's actually a little bit more um, tactile uh, okay. on the way to Reboa. So we're, so, you know, the average paramedic. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to do this without my medical director sitting oh, over. No, 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 no. I, I want a doctor. Like that's not the suggestion at all. Listen, no, and, if and, I'm and, doing this or I've been assisting with this or if I, even if I had the ability to be allowed to do this, I want my doctor with me. Sure. But in like, so let's, let's take this in the hypothetical world that the paramedic has been trained to do this. There's a doctor over their shoulder every time they go somewhere and everyone has permission to do everything. So what I'm saying is that the average paramedic that we were talking about, the one who only maintains their cert on the basic level, if you no give way. them the training, hold and on, the- hold on. If you give them the training to do a resuscitative thoracotomy procedure, it's big things. There's four pieces of equipment. Right. I don't have to worry about missing a vessel or something like that. I'm going to stick my hand in someone's chest. I'm going to go They're to the hospital. They're not going to do it. So I'm actually more inclined to think that a medic that's trained to any level would be more likely to start a cordis than to operate a rib spreader. Really? I'm watching a video as we speak about this of a resuscitative thoracotomy. Do you, I'm, I'm thinking like, I cannot think of anybody who's going to want to do this in the field. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. It's, I, it's, I, it's I, a, it's just a I agree with you. It's a but, practical but London, app- but but London Hems does it. London Hems has, I mean, I'm talking as a paramedic. Like you have a doctor with you. Different diff- story. Different story. But even with a doctor and a paramedic performance, the doctor should just do this if it's going to be them on scene. You can operate as their assistant, but like as I'm watching this, I'm like, there's, First of all, there's a lot of anatomy you got to know. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So short of going to a cadaver lab, there's no, there's no I, way you're gonna. Kevin, I'm not advocating for us to do this. Don't get me wrong. I mean, don't flame me on the on social media <laughs> and on the internet, please. <laughs> I had a bad week this week. I, I, send I don't all, need any send all the videos of thoracotomies. Be like, I'm not gonna do this one either. I mean, I would if given proper training, because I'm 
an insane a person. Bad man. <laughs> but I mean, I'm like looking at this, I'm thinking like I can't even like some people get like uneasy about just doing CPR and feeling the ribs break beneath them. I can't imagine right. somebody operating no, a ribs I think there's a huge effect and not throwing up into the hole they just made in somebody's chest. That's Ooh. why I think all of these procedures need to be in the world of the physician. Absolutely. I think I think the paramedic can be an assistant. I think we can be in a valuable second in these things. And I think there is a place for these in the right system. Mm-hmm. But so, I don't think your average medic's going to be able. No, I, I don't think, I agree. I don't think today the average medic is going to be able to perform this skill. Um, I do think that if you're going to implement, like if you're deciding like, oh, do I implement this system today or tomorrow, then absolutely it has to be a physician-guided thing. If for no other reason than for the ultrasound, because most medics haven't been trained in ultrasound. Um, so I, I, I agree with that, but I do think... As I said, I, I think looking forward five or ten years, this is more and more of a skill. Now, and again, this is also assuming that technology evolves in five or ten years, that there's more accessible and you know better ultrasound than what we have now, and then also whatever cordis you have to place is easier to place, and it's a you know better and technology. And the like definition that, so. of an average paramedic has to change too. Yeah, when do we stop calling them paramedics at this point? I think okay. I mean, I mean there's like advanced paramedics, but at what point do we? We change the practice. We're doing stuff that's like we're talking about things that are pretty invasive. Like, do we stop calling them paramedics, or do we? Because we're at, something's got to. I mean, I think I guess part of more of the evolution of the practice. It's like a PA light. Yeah, it's 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 gone. I think it's gone beyond. So is this? Is well, London London calls theirs paramedics. I right. think. Well, I think we have a nomenclature problem here between oh, the whole EMT yeah. and paramedic thing. But at what point do we go beyond like? This sounds like something that's not in a skill set of your typical like street provider. Right. This might become a pre-hospital provider that's like a completely different class as paramedic. Yeah, you, call, you can I still agree. call it paramedic. Like they haven't oh, I agree. It. That means we're going to have to up our education and up the pay and well, up we, the so responsibility. So a model that's been proposed um, at, at a series of different projects has essentially been you have a resuscitationist team of paramedics that goes out. So instead of saying, like, your standard set of paramedics, you know, two on an ambulance, whatever, you actually have two people, say, like, in a chase car or SUV that has specialized equipment, and they respond to, say, traumas and cardiac arrest almost exclusively. Oh, where's this job? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So, but again, this is another thing that this this particular model doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of places. It's a hypothetical model for a lot of places. Mm -hmm. But if you're thinking, like, all right, instead of having standard paramedics do this, because, again, the bridge to, to any new procedure or new technology is going to be well. We have to have higher trained people do it first, right? That's Absolutely. how it. That's how it works yeah. for everything. Well, you look put, at defibrillation. You know, sure, like you put it out to your FTOs, you put it out to your doctors first, and it kind of go. It kind of trickles down. So the bridge to this would you have you know two medics who have been trained either in Reboa or ultrasound or you know whatever else, what other training you'd like to have them in, and you put them in a chase vehicle, and they get they respond to you know significant traumas, they respond to cardiac arrest, and that's the things that they do. So that might be a that might be I think it's doable, but I think we're gonna I think it's gonna require a, a significant rethinking of the profession as a whole. Yeah, I think that I think that becomes something completely different. Like mm-hmm. how you have PAs and nurse practitioners, like this may become a that specific thing may become a super specialized subset. Hey, the UK you know, whatever does you wanna this. whatever you wanna call it, but I think that'll be separate from the rank and file paramedics. Not just I'm not just talking about like, you know, in that might be just a completely different like asset, whether it belongs to a town, the, maybe the hospital sends it out to the municipality EMS. Right. Like I think that's so in our current system, that's so far removed. Like that might actually be a completely different entity. I think I think you're right. That. I think this I think the limitations of our current system in the United States as it works is going to preclude this from getting out to the vast majority of places. Yeah. Um I think a London system would work great. Um, but let, Ed, let's talk about how to, how is London doing this? London's so, Air Ambulance is one of the premier HEMS agencies right. in, in the world. They fly with a doctor paramedic team. Uh, they drop into literally anywhere. And if you go on YouTube, they, really these, cool videos these guys will, mm-hmm. these pilots will go anywhere. They will land any place and yeah. they bring their trauma team directly to the patient. Yeah, and, and they do stuff. And they're super up to date on all their training. So London Air Ambulance has been doing Rebo in the field um, since 2014. Now, again, <clears throat> excuse me, when we talk about the the reason that everyone has to be highly trained on this, from 2014 to 2018, London placed Reboa 13 times successfully. So it's a... So super- roughly three times a year. <coughs> right, and it's a super low yield skill, which again, I, I realize that 
you know, we're talking about this resuscitative thing as if it's going to happen all the time, and it's not, right? So that's another danger that we have to consider where it's not something you do all the time. Right. So that's more. That's why it's more important to keep up on it. Low They're frequency, also, high intensity. Right. They're also doing um, only zone three placements, which there's three zones for Reboa. One essentially is in the upper thoracic cavity. Two is right in the middle. No Reboa gets placed there. And three gets placed closer to the, uh, the renal arteries. Okay, so they... So, okay, so... Yeah, so zone two is above the renal arteries. Zone yeah. three below. So zone three is below, and th- that's pretty much what they're uh, what they're using for now. Okay. Part of the problem with this data set is that you might have a lot of patients who have a zone one trauma, to like the the higher part of the thorax or to the abdomen that can right. be eligible, and that isn't included in the data. Right. So it, right, it, like so a it, proximal descending aortic injury that there's right, not, or yeah. a pulmonary artery injury that's not going to be Reboa right. specific. So, but the numbers that they're putting out are also still pretty interesting. So, of these 13 patients, you had 62 percent that survived the discharge, right? Which is a pretty high number. 62 percent is for survival discharge in any data set is fairly good. Yeah, that that raises eyebrows, right? But then also there were zero deaths from hemorrhage. Right. Which, okay. again, the whole point of doing this is to stop hemorrhage. So no one died from hemorrhages. Well, that's right? good. Now, there were six failures of the Reboa placement. And the, of those six failures, the ones that died did die from hemorrhage. Right. So this is when we talk about, like, it's a high risk skill. You know, if you're trying to place a cortis on a patient who's already hypovolemic because they're bleeding and you screw up, you've kind of essentially signed a death warrant for the patient. Conceivably, you could. So I, I think that's. That's going to be one of the bigger Especially if you're cutting into the femoral artery and you can't place that cortis right. and you can't do what you need to do. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't want to come off as glib about this. Like, I don't think that, you know, Dave down the street can just do this arbitrarily. Like, they, <laughs> you don't know Dave. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> you don't know Dave. <laughs> so, Dave, we you know, like you. Like Keep listening. <laughs> like, there absolutely has to be a training program behind it due in part to these six failures that most of them died from hemorrhage. Um, and then of those, of these patients, and again, this is where the data set gets kind of interesting. Three of the patients required a lower extremity amputation, right? This is after the placement of the Reboa, right? right? Because, again, you're placing it in the aorta, so there's going to be a problem with distal circulation, so people have lower limb ischemia, right? Where that gets really interesting is there were also three amputations without Reboa for patients who didn't get this treatment that suffered uh, similar injuries. Okay. So it's easy to throw out and be like, okay, well, you have the three that actually have this injury, and the correlation is to this treatment, thus people lose their limbs. Or sometimes people just lose their limbs because they're ischemic. Right. Right. Now, Significant ischemia. Yeah, that'll yeah. happen. Now, again, coagulopathy. I mean, there's a, right. a whole bunch of different reasons. And another bigger problem with it is something that we talk about all the time in EMS training is would you rather be alive without a leg or have the leg? Right. This is something that we talk about in trauma a lot too, mm-hmm. where it's just yeah. like, well, okay, so you know, you're bleeding. everybody everybody just stopped and thought about do I can I go without a leg? <laughs> I mean you can't go without like oh, being yeah, alive. So it's, I feel like... it's like the CPR episode from the office. <laughs> like, Kevin, would you want to live without arms and legs? Like maybe no legs. <laughs> Definitely arms. Definitely arms. arms. <laughs> but it so that's kind of the variable is like, you know, we can fix people, but they might lose their lower limbs out of it. But we can fix them. Like they're still alive. But they just don't have that leg. So, and the other issue behind it is that eleven of the patients had a significant clotting injury after this procedure as well. Mm. Now, right. there are no, there's no reported strokes or anything like that. Just right. the, the significant clot was what was reported in the data set. So, again, it stands to reason because we're putting a fairly large introductory device into the femoral artery, so we know there's sure. going to be a clotting from that from just from introducing a foreign body. So, we have thirteen patients who received this treatment. They all survived, you know, 67% survival to discharge, or 62%. 62. 62% survival to discharge, which is good, but we also have 11 that have a significant clot. Right. Now, there's nothing that they've put out that actually shows the downstream effects of that, aside from, you know, the ischemia and the amputations. So, of those 11, I'd be interested to see, like, how many had a PE, how many had a stroke after that, or were, were they contributing How many died from metabolic derangements from right. having that occlusion of that aorta for so long? Right. And then those waste products flushing back. We always talk about crush injury. Mm-hmm. We're yeah, kind of initiating. We're, we're creating a crush injury to buy time for the surgeon or the interventional radiologist right. to stop that bleed. Well, and the other interesting thing is that the way that they this operation, this procedure is kind of done all the right ways in London, mm-hmm. where this would be my concern looking toward the way that we run things. So London has a procedure called right turn resuscitation where you come in to essentially the recess room 
and it's called right turn because you essentially turn directly right before you get in to start the resuscitation and it's a direct turn into the operating room wow now most of our most of our facilities are not built that way no um you know arguably most ors are not on the first floor period let alone just to the right of the emergency department so that's another big consideration where even if we implement this treatment are you going to be able to be in a system that can actually deliver this patient to an operating room immediately? Like now. Right. And we talk about like having a paradigm shift as far as our culture is concerned. I, I mean, we have enough trouble bringing stroke patients in and having them go right up to CAT scan. Yeah, we're still, we're still fighting that battle. Yeah. We're still fighting. Yep. Direct, listen, let's go back. We're still fighting the battle of patients should, with STEMI should go straight to the cath lab. Mm-hmm. That's even way or even Rosk in the field should go to the cath lab. And that's exactly. And then uh, that's ex- that's that's literally happened to me yesterday. Um, we I was working a ground shift. We had a resuscitation in the field. No names. No, of course not. Um, <laughs> immediately identified a STEMI post uh, post Rosk. We had a good long twenty minute Rosk. He okay. nice all the way to the hospital. Activated the cath lab, and we're like, we want to do an ED pause and go straight up. And we spent thirty minutes in the ED just waiting for the team to assemble and we had 20 they had 15 minutes to do so and just it's still a battle we're fighting and it i don't I mean obviously i don't know the outcome i'll call make a few phone calls and check out tomorrow but like it's it's frustrating like because yeah. with something that should be so simple but like anna said before we got to get the hospitals on board with what we want to do in the field and vice versa sure what they want us to do we got to do for them too well, and also i think we have to sell to our healthcare systems what they've done in the UK is that, you know, paramedicine and the application of paramedicine in the field has a strong benefit to their facilities. Right. So let's let's talk big picture then, because, again, we're this is a, you know, big sweeping thing that we're that we're looking at. Is it is it our responsibility as pre-hospital providers to wait for a hospital system to implement us a treatment or device and for us to get on board or is it partly our responsibility to start implementing something and have the hospitals get on board secondary to that that's uh, that i think that question is comes down to the system you're in if you're in a truly hospital-based system the hospitals get implemented and it's going to trickle down right because you work under them if you're working for a third party a municipality a private not-for-profit that's where it gets a little hazier because are you going to try to force their hand? You're be like, hey, our medical director thinks we could do this and have your people call my people. And then <laughs> it doesn't... It doesn't we'll get it, lunch over it. It takes <laughs> a much longer time, in my opinion, for things to get done that Listen, way. Listen, even in a fully contained hospital system where your medics are employees of your hospital, your clinical people, your management, your medical directors all in the same hospital, Listen, it's not as easy as you think it is because not that hospital system has a limited ability to tell private practice physicians and specialists what they're going to do. Okay. And you know, that's a big problem. You know, the UK it's national health system, national health service. Sorry. Um, They will say, this is what you do. This is where you go. This is how we do it. And that's that. There's no debate. There's no argument because all the physicians work for the NHS. If you don't want to do it, huh, okay, go to Scotland, go also, someplace else. But we don't have that in the U.S. Right. No. So here's an interesting thought experiment then. So we do have a grouping of private ambulance companies that I would say have enough geographic coverage area to maybe implement their own thing. So I almost wonder, and again, this is entirely hypothetical, if there's an organization that covers, you know, say multiple states, if they implement a practice, do you think they would have enough clout to actually start moving the practice forward in the coverage area? Or is that just more, you know, it's theoretical, but the reality of the politics is that the hospitals would just say, well, we don't need you. Bureaucratic red tape. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I I don't know that there's an answer to it. And I, and I think and that management would back down. Okay. You're saying that the ambulance companies would back down. Oh, they'd be, they'd be terrified to lose customers. They'd be terrified to lose contracts. They'll be like, whatever you want. That's fine. I, that's, I, God, I wish I didn't, but I, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to agree I mean, with you, but I do. You know, I'm I, sorry, but that's a reality. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think that we, as an industry, kind of, I don't want to say lack the backbone, but I think, you know, we're... To, we're very eager to please 
a lot of times, and I think that is detrimental to the clinical care that some of the patients. Absolutely, look, medical. Look, American medicine. You have there are hospital systems, and I talked a lot. Yeah, I've talked to a bunch of people. There's hospital systems that will not tell their private practice physicians, like, look, this is what we do. Right, that's and, it. and that's that's you know, absolutely a systemic even, problem. And when it comes to an educational perspective, like trying to get a trying to get your students in, you know, if it's a non-teaching facility, right. you know, you have physicians that can say, and it happened to me in medic school, get out of here, I don't want you here. You're this is my patient. Yeah, I, I think that happens more often than we're willing to admit. Oh, right? absolutely. So that actually that would be a, that'd be an interesting topic for an episode to actually talk about how. If if that's beneficial or detrimental to the practice writ large, yeah, I, I said, sure, sure, yeah. I know, <laughs> got it. I mean, I think we know it is, but detrimental. I, I think this thin. is something, you know, and I know we're coming up on a hard out, but you know, I I think this is something that could happen in the future. I do believe it's going to save lives, right? Um, I think that you know, we have to be very cautious about how we implement this, who does it, what systems do it, right? Um, it's very resource intensive. It's very knowledge intensive. And just like some of the, you know, just like a lot of things that we're starting to embrace or look at doing in paramedicine, you have to make the commitment for this. Absolutely. You know, I, I, even things like whole blood, I mean, there, you know, we talk about this stuff and you know, a lot of, you know, it's great, but you have to make that educational commitment. You have to make that clinical oversight commitment if you're just if your whole place is just about taking people to the hospital, forget it. Stop listening. Just don't even consider this stuff. Right. No, and it's it's a big holistic change. And I think another big concern is that we have to try to resist the temptation to see like a big new shiny thing and try and implement it too quickly. Because hmm. that's also something that's also something we're really thousand percent. <laughs> this is something that only the best should be even considering. I, I agree with you. So um, we're interested to see what or to hear what you guys think. Um, if you've heard about this in your practice or if this is being done near you, um, please let us know. Uh, we're going to have links to lots of stuff in the show notes for this. Um, and we're going to talk about this more because this is something that's going to keep evolving and growing. Um, you know, and if you're down in the pen area, let us know. What, uh, yeah, I agree. What, I mean, this is, this is pushing pen. the practice forward. This is what we want. But we have to be very... I think we have to be very circumspect in how we do this and what we honestly assess what our people can do. Absolutely. So there's more to talk about on this. Um, we're going to close it up for now. So for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>